0: Welcome to Be Customer Led, where we'll explore how leading experts in customer and employee experience are navigating organizations through their own journey to be customer led and the actions and behaviors employees and businesses exhibit to get there. And now, your host, Bill (laughs) Stakos.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Be Customer Led. I'm your host, Bill Stakos. I have a very special guest for us this week. Andy Bins is director and co founder of Change Logic LLC. And we're going to get into a little bit about what Andy does at Change Logic. He's also co-author of a book, fantastic book, Corporate Explorer. He's co-founder of the Corporate Explorers Club. He's a fast company executive board member, and that's where we got hooked up. And then he's an innovation advisor and a keynote speaker. I don't know where you find all the time, Andy, but <laughs> welcome to the Be Customer LED. It's great to have you here.
0: Thank you very much, Bill. Delighted. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Oh my gosh. We're, this is a really interesting show. I mean, the book that you wrote is really about how larger corporations can really beat sort of the startups and other smaller companies at the innovation game. Really important topic, but also just the way you laid out the book was fantastic. And I, for those who are listening, go out and go buy the book. And we're going to get into parts of the book because there's some really interesting things I want to dig in on. Before we do, though, you've got a really interesting background. I was hoping if you can share with our listeners the journey.
0: Yes, thank you. And thanks for the uh kind words about the book. It's Corporate Explorer is is sort of a a thing I've been thinking about for a long time. And although the title only came relatively recently, that there's lots of threads that yeah. that have been in in my career. I was in marketing originally and then I I went to an interview with a consulting firm for a marketing job and the guy interviewing me said you're a natural consultant I'm like, <laughs> what's one of those <laughs> and so that's that, that was a real sort of insight and fortunate to work for a few years at mckinsey and company and then at ibm and really the ibm experience mm-hmm. i mean mckinsey is a phenomenal yeah. institution we could talk about it a great deal i mean there's it, in some respects it taught me what i don't want to do in the future right? it told me how i had the exact opposite the change logic consulting the exact opposite way to mckinsey in many mm-hmm. ways but the IBM experience was, was, was tremendous because I was fortunate to be there at a point sort of when the great turnaround led by Lou Gerstner had kind of been successful. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to figure out how do they establish new sources of growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they created this emerging business opportunity program, which I got to work on with the head of strategy cool. at that point, Bruce Harold, And that's really the sort of the epicenter. And I had these two business school professors to work candidly I wasn't even sure what a business school was at that point. I hadn't <laughs> been to one. And I, I, but here I was with a Harvard and a Stanford professor. And then a few years later, I set up a business with them, which has changed logic. And now yeah. we've written this book together as well.
1: Fantastic. So the, the book is really thought-provoking. In fact, I think you kind of alluded to it at the top of uh, top of the show, it really goes against sort of conventional wisdom even on some level. During my days at J.P. Morgan, we always talked about, can you innovate faster than the than the startup can scale? right? Because we were so Ooh, large. Uh, yeah, that was a big, yeah. big conversation and still is there in many ways. How do you think about it? So like, why did you like, let's talk like, why did you, I'm always curious about authors. One, because I, I don't have the guts to actually write my own book, but why did you write the book? And can you share like with our listeners, maybe like one to two surprises that you uncovered during your research too? Any aha sure. moments?
0: Yeah, we, we have, the book has this subtitle, right? Corporate Explorer, how corporations beat startups. At the innovation game. Yep. And we could have made it how corporations sometimes, occasionally, might be able <laughs> to. <laughs> but we went for the slightly more provocative. Yeah. And we went for the more provocative because it is true. It's not always true. It's always hard in my experience. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any, any point at which it's easy. Even for startups, right? I mean, Even it's for startups, yeah, yeah, hello. And I would say that was one of the surprises. As I was doing the research, talking to uh, people who are in um, venture-led startups, mm-hmm. trying to understand, make sure that I was reflecting their part of the story in, mm-hmm. in this as well. They were the least likely people to disagree with me, right? They would all say, Gee, this is hard for us as well. You think a CEO and a management board is hard to get funding? Well, go try talking to a VC fund. It yeah. might only have a five-year horizon. We talk about them having all oh, are in for the long term. Well, <laughs> five years <laughs> ain't that long, right? Okay, many of them will come for multiple rounds. Sure. Or oh, no, my third round funding, VC might disagree with my first round. So, yeah. so there's a lot of tensions in it. And of course, there's huge numbers of benefits and opportunities that a startup gets from its increased flexibility. Yeah. But the scale question, that's the one that really, you know, sets apart the corporations mm-hmm. if they can figure out how to unlock what they already have uh, for in sure. getting this done.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I you know, the ability to A B test with millions of customers out of the gate Hello. really yeah. is can add a ton of value. In the first so I you you have the, the book broken out in a number of sections. Mm. The first section of the book, explore aspiration. You talk about the concept of corporate explorer. So tell us about these individuals, like who they are, what makes them different. And, and as a leader of teams, even Andy, I'm always looking out for these types in my group, in my organization, right? Because how do I make sure that we're motivating these individuals? We're giving them the flexibility to flex the corporate explorer muscle, so to speak. So I'm yes. so I'm curious, like, how do you define it, and who, what do they look like typically?
0: Yeah. So let me start a little bit further back to answer that, because I think I think there's a piece of the context as to who they are in a corporation that's important, mm-hmm. because we know that it's hard to do this in large corporations, and and there's this long list of companies that have suffered from disruption and disappeared or or gone into bankruptcy: Kodak, yeah. Polaroid, Nokia, the story. Right? Yeah. So. We know, and and when we look at them, mostly it is not because they didn't have the innovation. Netflix offered themselves for sale to Blockbuster. (laughs) Kodak had uh, digital photography. Polaroid had the first megapixel camera in the market in healthcare, right? So it's not a question of having the insight. The question is execution. Can they get it done? And so one of the things is that, that, that they're not listening, right? It is that they're not listening to what they've got. They're not listening mm-hmm. to the opportunity. They're not valuing it. And that's what the corporate explorer does, mm-hmm. is the really good corporate explorers sort of puncture that bubble. Candidly, leadership teams very often have around their business mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. makes them believe it'll just continue and continue and continue. And they, they do this, with an insight and, and, and they must be customer led in my view Mm -hmm. to to really do this. Yes, there are technology led startups within corporations as well. We should talk about that. So what, what I feature in, in the book, what we feature in the book is the story of people who are, who are grabbed by a passion. They see something in the world that they think should be different, mm-hmm. just like an entrepreneur would. Mm-hmm. And in a way, what's what's different is that they're transforming an industry they're already a part of. So an example of this would be the example we start with of Christian Kurtisch at the Austrian insurance company. Right? It's a All fascinating
1: story that you brought up. I wasn't familiar with it until you yeah, until I read it.
0: Yeah. I mean, incredible. And Chris, Christian is this, this this awesome guy, humble, smart as hell. Yeah really really been a long time insurance company executive and he's managing the Hungarian business of this European multibillion dollar insurance company and it's not a, Hungary's not a very large country i mean it's a, yeah. it's a, a yeah. not Hungary but it's not huge right and so for him to go to the ceo which through a series of steps he gets to the ceo with this radical concept that says everything you think about your business is wrong you don't need uh, and he, he actually has this chart where he has uh, a tower, an office tower. This is the insurance company today, and next to it, he has this little tiny, you know, one single-story building. This is how many people I need to replicate it today, right? Because, you know, technology, business yep. models, and such. Yep. You don't need all of these folks over here and this big, yeah. uh, and all the cost that goes with it. If you're really trying to solve the customer's problem rather than just perpetuate the existence of an uh, of the insurance company. Mm-hmm. And and he's fortunate. His CEO says this is like a nuclear bomb underneath our industry and we've got to do it. And and this is this is the story. It's it's yeah. of leaders with a passion driven by an insight with yeah, the skill to tell the story and get the attention that they need in mm-hmm. order to get started. How important,
1: well I guess it it's it's everything, right? If that CEO didn't say let's do this. It would have died on the vine. He may have gone out externally, right? As an example.
0: Well, well he, had, he had external funding options. As yeah. So, I, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. The, the point around being a very tech forward business, maybe we can, we can mm-hmm. call it. Good. How important is that? Because in that case, and in many cases where you see this, they're almost taking a, a platform approach to the business model, right? I think about Lemonade here in the US, right? Mm-hmm, Com- mm-hmm. As completely, and I'm a customer, mm-hmm. has completely upended insurance in a major way and just sort of the the way that's done. How important is it for the organization to be tech savvy or tech forward? Does being so, maybe I guess my question is Does being so make sure that you've got the right mindset internally to be able to do this kind of work and rethink the way that you've done business for the last 50, 100, 200 years?
0: Yeah. And one, one of the things that's noticeable about the book, which yeah you know, we we wrestled with it a little bit now one of my colleagues, one of my co-authors I'd say which was like, can't we put an example in here that's not a digital business transformation Andy come on, sure. there must be something else going on in the world and I'm like, yeah, there is, but right now it, it it's not important relatively speaking yeah right, that yeah so many of the innovations that we see in in whatever a sector you're in have some flavor of of digital technologies mm-hmm. of some kind or AI or machine yeah, learning yeah. there's something that has to do with learning to add that to uh, a solution to solve a problem mm. and so one of the things that that does is it means that you've got to find access to those capabilities for sure mm-hmm. right no question but these ventures also teach right they're sort of incubators mm-hmm. of capability and culture of what the future is going to look like. And so I think that's what Christian is doing at Unica. I think that we talk about Kevin Carlin at Analog Devices. And, yep. you know, semiconductors firms are in some ways quite backward in a lot of their business processes Mm -hmm. and activities and market view because they haven't needed to be because the only (laughs) thing they needed to do is generate chips and and actually (laughs) amusingly, we're back in that situation now with them, right? And so what what, what Kevin does is he chose analog devices, what the future looks like in terms of how you can create offerings that connect silicon Mm -hmm. to the cloud and analytics and all of the possibilities that that brings.
1: So, very, very cool. You bring up in the book sort of the three, three innovation disciplines, ideation, incubate, and scale, That's right? I've, a B, VCG has almost a similar model. I've seen like similar. I love how you get just the simplicity of it though and how you break this out in the book is really important. How do you think about the customer even the employee or even the, the broader workforce even uh, yeah. as an example as part of the success yeah. to move through these disciplines?
0: Yeah, good. So I'm going to start that answer with one kind of response, and I'm going to appear to radically disagree with myself. Okay. <laughs> okay? This just is going to, to be interesting. To okay. Set the expectation <laughs> so that everybody can well, wait a minute. What's he talking about now? Yeah, yeah. So, so the first thing you have to say is that employees are, at, at some level one of your most important sources of information and possibilities. Mm-hmm. This is, this is for mo- any organization of scale, this is a ready-made crowd, right, that you should be leveraging very actively to uh, see the future of innovation. One of the um, folks we work with occasionally is um, Simon, uh, I can't remember his second name or something, Kazuku anyway, which is mm-hmm. one of these idea platforms. And Simon has this great phrase where he talks about that innovation is at the same stage of development as CRM was 20 years ago, (laughs) right? And that at some point, we will be able to aggregate information about all of the ideas that we've ever had or ever tested or experimented with. And so when we have that idea again, (laughs) or when the market matures and makes it possible again, Mm -hmm. we can go back and we can see what we've done and so on. And so I think there's tremendous opportunity in tapping into employees and obviously network partners and ecosystems and whatever. Big fan of that kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. And now let me disagree with myself, (laughs) right? And this is that that is also a trap, right? And the Mm -hmm. trap is the innovation zoo. There's something about creating ideas and generating possibilities that uh, is addictive to humans. We just love being involved in that. And the thing about the ideate incubate scale approach is that it needs to, you need to recognize the money gets made in the scale. It doesn't get made in the ideation. Yep. And so if you're not careful, you'll get trapped generating ideas. And it's very fun. It's con- and, and it's, it's time-consuming. And it's risk-free. Because mm-hmm. you don't really have... Relatively speaking, you don't have to spend very much money yeah. on it. Yeah. So the trick is to think about how you do ideation in a way... That is focused towards things that you want to do that you mm-hmm. want to invest in so we talk in the book as you point out about having an ambition mm-hmm. having a really clear mm-hmm. sort of compelling strategic ambition the one i like best is mastercard under ajay Banga, right the financial services guy you know who he is and yeah. he's like we want to wage a war on cash and i want to convert 85 percent of those transactions to our business yeah right so he's, he's giving me an ambition that's really compelling, but also I, I've got something I can anchor it in, in terms of knowing what I've got to achieve. Mm-hmm. And so then, I, well, where can I achieve that? You've got to frame up what are the hunting zones, where mm-hmm. I'm going to hunt to realize that ambition, and that narrows the space. It bounds your innovation. Mm-hmm. And then I'll come to my crowd and I'll say, okay, crowd, what are the customer problems that really matter? Or here are the customer problems we see in the in the hunting zone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How, how would you solve them? What's your insight? Then you can use that employee energy, the customer energy, the ecosystem energy to, to a more directed purpose, I think.
1: So I want to come back to the three disciplines, but I have a follow-up yeah. question for you because there are a lot of platforms out there that are, you know, crowdsourcing innovation across your workforce, yeah. fantastic platforms. I've used them in the, pla- in the past, yeah. but if I take it back to what you just said, though, right, where you've got people kind of voting up ideas, as an example, do you get out of that trap or do you need to be both crowdsourcing plus focused to, to really be able to tease out the best ideas that will have the most impact? Because oftentimes it's what ideas do you have to improve communication? whatever that means or what ideas do you have to improve our business and you get the the salad in the lunchroom isn't so good to very very big obviously there are employees great employees everywhere who have wonderful ideas that can get voted up but sometimes also can get kind of drowned out so do you have to do both to really tap into your workforce
0: so for for me it's about being focused Mm -hmm. Uh, i think there's another dimension of employee engagement and there's a different objective you might yeah. pursue for motivation and, and so on. But even then, I want to make sure things happen, right? Because it's just having a point of view is not is nothing. motivating, right? It's got to it's happen here. Yeah. But, so I, I, and there's another where I can point to where, where I feel that this question of being sort of objective-led, not mm-hmm. pipeline-led. This is a mm-hmm. distinction uh, somebody drew the other day in an article I read. Uh, I think it's, this captures what we're saying exactly right? That I want to be threaded through what am I trying to achieve here and take what steps I need to get there. In scale, you have the same story, right? In scaling, for me, people wait too long before they think about how they're going to scale a new venture. I want to know right up front, what's your hypothesis? What's this going to look like? And where are you going to get access to customers? How are you going to get access to capabilities? How are you going to get access to capacity? to bring this to scale. And yeah. I want to know that now, because I, I may need to buy some pretty big stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. Again, use your balance sheet is a key part of a, of a corporate scaling yep. plan yep. To, to, to make that happen.
1: Really interesting. So on the three disciplines, my question is, how do you, when you're ready to move to the next discipline, <laughs> like, are there any kind of tells in there that
0: yeah, you kind yeah, of yeah, see? Yeah, good. good. I think that the the shift from ideation to incubation comes about when you've got evidence that you've you've got a customer problem that there is a sort of a, the qualitative answer that mm-hmm. what the design thinking people talk about with mm-hmm. of desirability right yeah. you've got evidence of desirability yeah. Yeah. and you've got some quantification that solving that problem is is yeah. and and it's that feasible got,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah yeah
0: and you've got at least some notions of feasibility and yeah. and and whatever the other ones come because you, you, you want to be able to then frame up a business design or business model hypothesis. And that's what you're going to test. And one of the things I see people do is go to incubation too quickly without Mm. having articulated what it is that they're testing Mm. as a business, right? So, So what's the problem? Why have we got the most compelling answer to that problem? How are we going to make money uh, who are the potential partners within this why mm-hmm. would we be differentiated versus others you need those things stated even if you don't know you're right especially if you don't know you're right, mm-hmm. right? this is just a straight lift from the scientific method right yep. you know you know scientists start with hypotheses. hypothesis they yep. test out whether something's going to work right and so that's the first tip if you if you can frame up your business design with clarity on a customer problem and you've got enough by way of the quality of answer, then you can move mm-hmm. to incubation. The tip from incubation into scaling is much harder, unquestionably much mm-hmm. harder. The textbook answer is you've validated all of these hypotheses.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's not necessarily the way it plays out, right? The reality is there's a judgment, which is you validated enough to give you or to give your investor sufficient confidence that mm-hmm. it's worth the next, mm. the next step. And that you never really stop experimenting. Well, you do stop, but but you, you don't stop for some times. And this is where the, the the requirements of a book actually blur reality. Yes, we say ideate, incubate, scale, but nothing's yeah. quite so linear. Yeah. This is a really complex yeah. world. Right? Yeah. So yeah. I think there's a point at which you're scaling and you're still experimenting, particularly on things like go-to-market, right? Yeah. What's the go-to-market approach is often something you're still testing even as you're starting to try out uh, channels that do seem to work and trying to get revenue.
1: Got it. Yeah. I mean, even if you think about sort of like the the classic model of business stages, right? You've got startup growth, scale, maturity, right? I mean, somewhere between incubation and scale, you're still growing like crazy. That's where you're testing and learning. Things are changing. You're adding people, trying to raise capital, et cetera. Really, really interesting. Let's talk about ambidextrous organization yes. or, or the organizational structure, right? And team mm. structures for that matter. Yeah. From your research or even just your, your opinion, like what do you feel is the optimal way? Could you talk a little bit about this in the book? But do you, do you see an optimal way to set up these ventures and set them up for success? Now, there's a couple of different models that you go into, but do you have a preference?
0: Yeah. Yeah, good, and and you're very subtly saying yeah, but you don't quite tell us what to do, do you?
1: Andy? No, no, no. You got to decide for yourself, right? Yeah. But uh, I'm I'm curious. That's why I always read. I'm like, well, I wonder which one he likes. So that's do why I asked the likes.
0: question. Let, let, let me see. Let me see if I can answer that a little bit. It, it's, I would say it's the thing that I am most la- likely to get paid to to help people with. Right. Smart answer. Because it's kind of it is the most vexing in in, yeah. in all kinds of ways. Yeah. The, j- just for your listeners, this notion of the ambidextrous organization is is one that Michael Tushman and Charles O'Reilly are, are best associated with. In in academic circles, they've written about it for twenty five years, and yeah. and others have come along with versions of it. There are people who talk about dual strategies and dual transformations. It's the same thing. They just you know borrowed it from from Ambidextrous organization, and to be fair, Michael and Charles took it from others in in the past who talked about core and ex- explore yeah. and exploit and all the rest of it so and the, and the basic principle I boil down to three things: firstly, that it's an organization with a shared ambition right? so you, everything you're doing is in service of an ambition like mm-hmm. uh, war on cash or, yeah. or, or or some of the others we could talk about. Then you have autonomy for the explore business from the core. They can operate with sufficient freedom to make decisions about how to operate, what their culture is, what their structure is, to some degree, what their compensation is, can be separate, and there can be autonomy. And then the third piece is that they can still access the assets of the Mm -hmm. core business in order to go faster than a startup. And of course, it's the access bits that, that causes the most Challenge, uh, because this is the place where you 're dealing with the the, the the little rowboat against the the oil tanker right, and so how do you how do you interface the two uh, yeah. is, is where things become most difficult. My question is to which one works is always contextual based on what you 're trying to achieve and what the nature of the innovation is so the more radical an innovation so this morning I was talking to a, a large German company. And the Corporate Explorer uh, I was talking to, was, was they, were, they were doing something which was an entirely different market. They work in automotive. This is in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Right? And entirely different capabilities. Not entirely different because it's still their same core technologies, but taken into, they actually made some new inventions on top of what they the, the, the did previously. Here, you've got to keep that pretty separate from the rest of the business, mm-hmm. right? So I want it to be fairly separate, partly because the core business isn't going to understand that they're going to try and impose all of the models that they're used to, to the new yeah. business. Yeah. So if you haven't got that separate, you're really going to struggle. And the other part of it is, what are you trying to achieve? And this is where we come back to this notion of what are you teaching to the business? Mm-hmm. What, you, how, what capability are you building? and in a world where everybody's going to need to understand about ai digital business models monthly active users all of these kinds of ab testing as you mentioned earlier all of these kinds of pieces of the digital world you're going to have to, if you keep that too separate what have you learned mm-hmm. what have you built right so for me the yes separate but not so separate that it isn't able to teach the rest of the business these things and mm-hmm. that it has sufficient uh, alignment to the business that it's going to be able to carry on using its assets to go faster. So that means that the sales team is going to play a role. That's often a great asset. Mm-hmm. Sometimes can be troubled, but, but it's often a great asset that you're going to get access, preferential access to manufacturing if that's what you need. Or mm-hmm. in the case of the insurance example, that the actuaries are going to be there helping sure. you put your products together and so on. So that access mm-hmm. piece remains important as well.
1: Oh man, that's that's an awesome perspective. One of the one of the toughest things in any organization, whether it's new getting people to think about new products, getting team structures to change, people to change is toward just changing itself. In the book, you kind of talk about the corporate explorer not only kind of leading with the innovation, but also leading the change as well. Yeah. yeah and being the change yeah, agent. Yeah, what yeah. advice do you have for corporate explorers about their who might be listening, right? About this and and where can what questions maybe they need to ask where could they start because there's you've got cotter's model you've got the Adcar model right there's a couple of different kind of change processes out there that you can certainly follow but what advice do you have for corporate explorers out there on the change piece because that it sounds like they've got the innovation piece down but maybe not so much the change management skills to it
0: i think that's right bill is, is you you do need to have both change and innovation corporate explorer is always both just like an entrepreneur is always selling, right? They're always Mm -hmm. selling to their VC, to their customers. So in the corporate explorer world, they've got to lead change. Mm -hmm. The most important thing from our research is they've got to build a social network or a a leadership movement around their innovation. And so they've they've really got to look at who are the people around them, not just the people above, right? Not just the um, manager or the sponsor, but also the peers Mm -hmm. that they have and maybe even some people and other teams and departments who they, whose help they might need, or who, for various reasons, may have the ability to undermine them. Right? Mm-hmm. And, so, and we, we come to this insight because of the research we've done. What we find is that the, the leaders that struggle most are those that come in from outside hmm. and have no social network. They are unknown quantities. Yeah, they correct. may have skills. They may have insights. They may have things that are, uh, are really valuable. But what they lack is the human influence. And so you're looking for who are my allies? Mm. Who are the people in this organization who are going to be able to do things for me or willing maybe to work even when it's not their, their job, right? Because they believe in what I'm doing. Who are your advocates? Who are those folks who you're going to have a coffee with or a virtual coffee uh, with and tell your story so that they may retell that story to others? And, and speak up for you, right? And then you're going to have some people who are never going to move, who are always going to be opponents. Candidly, some of them are like from central casting. Right? <laughs> there, there, are, there, are, there are just some archetypes out there. Yeah, The business unit leader or product line leader who just doesn't get it is a very common archetype. Yeah. And you need an ambassador. You need to say, "Hey, Bill, could you go speak to Gene or Fred and and try to explain to them what we're doing and why? Actually, it may help them in the long run to to support us, right? And and if and if they f- trust you more than me, then then maybe I'll get a little yeah. bit of more airtime from them. So you've got to work this network in a very yeah. personal way in order to get get to your goal.
1: Yeah, I, I was I was actually wondering when I was going through that that part of the book, I was wondering if if there's ever an instance where the innovator, the idea person, is different than the change person mm-hmm. going out and building the yeah. network. Yeah. And can you say, well, I guess this comes down to the company and the person with the idea, nonetheless. But could you separate those out and say you're the idea person, but you're the salesperson? Yeah. You go motivate yeah. the business. Yeah.
0: If you look at some of the famous startups, they often have an insider and an outsider. Yeah, that's right. right? Jerry Yang at Yahoo, and, and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other one, and and um, trying to think of the um. Google folks, they had the same. Yeah, Sergey Brin. Right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah,
0: and Larry Page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so, in a way, that kind of duality is one that I think is a, is a smart step for a corporate explorer to take. Yeah, mm.
1: I really love your uh, this concept of productive tension
0: mm. and
1: keeping people in this zone. Mm. So, if you could share it with our listeners, what? And I don't want to obviously, I don't want to give away too much of the book. I want really people to buy this book because actually, right. it's it's really important, particularly if you work. in a a large enterprise. Tell our audience around what productive tension is and how do corporate explorers create it and keep people in those zones?
0: Yeah, good, good. So let me answer that with a little bit of a story. So one of the most famous efforts to create a new venture inside an established corporations the last decade has been at uh, GE. And GE's effort to create this Predix platform and to create a sort of make GE a top ten software company—that mm-hmm. was the ambition framed by Jeff Immelt in like 2012, right? And what's interesting, and we, you know, Mike Tushman talked to Bill Roods, done a case. Bill Rood was the leader of this at GE, as has done a case on on Bill's efforts. And what becomes clear from all of this is that Bill was you working without all of the equipment to get his job done, basically. And to cut a long story short, the real the, the real reason was that Jim Jeff Immelt didn't want to have the tough conversation with his leaders to say, okay, you agree with my vision, and that means you're gonna have to give up something. Yeah. Right? It doesn't mean all gravy for you. Actually, you're gonna have to give up something. And why? Because, like most humans, he liked to maximize comfort, is my hypothesis. I've never met Jim Jeff mm. Immelt. But my guess is that that affable exterior. And he sh- yells and shouts, I'm sure, and this is also his reputation. But when it comes to really direct personal conflict with a peer who you, whose help you need, mm. right, leaders have a hard time doing this. CEOs have a hard time mm-hmm. doing this. And so this notion of productive tension is all about putting into the conversation the real issues and bringing, making things more transparent. Mm-hmm. And, and there are a few things that a corporate explorer can do to help with this. Some of it is always being transparent themselves, right? They've got to manage their reputation mm-hmm. so that they're as just as honest about where things aren't working as when things are, because otherwise people will very quickly found them out, and the, the, the unfairness of the world is such that that evidence will be treated much more um, seriously than the good stuff, right? It's just the way it is, right? Yep. So you've got to be really transparent. The second thing is to use some techniques, and we, talk, we, we describe a few in the book, for getting the senior team to do the same. So one of the uh, examples we give is of my my friend, Eric Kruschitz in, in Austria, who's the, then built on the success they had with the first innovation. They created a whole innovation mm-hmm. unit in, in in Unica. And Eric brings to the senior team a sort of a self-evaluation. Hey, team, here's eight criteria you're doing this well. How do you think you're doing? And it turns out they don't think they're doing as well as they want to either. Right? And so... That sort of practice of holding up a mirror help people see themselves because usually when when you're not sort of being told you are wrong, you're bad, mm. people say, yeah, actually, this isn't we we we're not quite where we want to be. Let's figure out how to get better. Yeah, and I think one of the things I really feel I'd like people to take from this book is that the senior team, the CEO, that even that archetypal central casting business unit manager, right. They're not making a bad decision. They're not making an irrational or ill-intentioned decision when they make judgments that are against innovation or exploration. They're just playing their role yeah. and they're doing their best job. Mm-hmm. And, and these, these things are hard, right? And you've got to help figure your way through the sort of the competing commitments to sustaining what we have versus creating something new. And that, that, that's the job of the corporate explorer.
1: So I, it's it's funny when I was going through this book, I was I was hearkening back to the mid nineteen nineties when the internet was really coming to the fore, yes. and you know I, I actually was having a conversation and on this show actually, it's the show hasn't been published, but she was the first chief innovation officer for Top Three Bank. The conversation she was having, people were like, "Why should I change? Why is the internet important to me?" Right now, this kind of now around this time, you have AI, machine learning, yes. and I was thinking the next 10 years, metaverse, and just opportunities to innovate, particularly if you're a large organization, because you do have that scale to be able to test and learn and really get that new platform for engaging your customers in different ways and innovating your business in different ways. How important that must be. And like, I'm really excited to see the corporate explorers kind of diving into that space and what we will see over the next 10 years as an example.
0: I think that's right. And what, one of the things we're trying to do here is speak to something that's changing. Corporate explorers have been around for decades. Yeah. I can take you back to the 1960s and the creation of the ATM machine yeah. by the 300-year-old yeah. company Delarue, right? Yeah. But, 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 they, but recently, but the last 10, 15 years, people have got that there's no option other than to do this for the reasons you state. We've looked at the past. We see the disruption threat. We see the world changing even faster. We've yeah. got to get on board with it. We've got to figure out how to do this. This is no longer optional. And those who don't will get left behind.
1: I wonder if you can create a recruiting strategy around corporate explorers. Yes. That could be actually an interesting yeah. differentiator yeah. Uh, for your company. Andy, th- your book was really inspiration for me. I hope that our listeners do go out and I'm sure they'll get inspiration.
0: Where do you go for inspiration? I'm curious. <laughs> Where do I go for inspiration? Well, I I, I also go to inspiration to Books. I'm reading this um, book by uh, Rebecca Henderson at the moment, Reimagining Capitalism, which I find very inspiring. Mm -hmm. Because I do feel there's something fundamental we need to rethink about the legitimacy of our system. I I also love to read the MIT Technology Review. I'm not a technologist, but I love the sort of the. The, the the possibilities that are out there, the innovation that does start in the lab, and the and the incredible brilliance of science. But I but I also look at history a great deal, mm. and and the history of science in particular, and the uh, way in which our world advances through this lots of experiments lots of failures lots of possibilities it's a, it's a const- and 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 lots of happy accidents as well yeah uh, for it's, sure it's it's a it's a constant discovery
1: and one last question for you Andy, i'm really grateful for your for your time today and and you being on the show who do you look up to in this space actually
0: who do i look up to in yeah, the space yeah like of- it's just
1: an industry like do you have anyone in industry that you are like here's a model person that you look up to
0: so I I don't know if I I have a model person exactly because it sort of implies this sort of a, a level of perfection. That, that <laughs> Fair I, enough. That I don't think I don't think any of us should, are, should, are, should maybe to go for maybe. I, are there business leaders you admire? Yeah, without question. And one of them we talk about in the book is Jensen Huang, right at Nvidia. And so here's my my story with Jensen Huang, 2015. I think it is, I get on the phone with him for a client project, and we're trying to understand his strategy and so on. And And at that point, their stock price is like $23. And I listen to him, and he's telling me, and I describe the conversation in the book, and, and he's telling me about this strategy he has and the insight and the vision and the rest of it. And I, wow, this guy's amazing. Put down the phone, and the client CFO is is with us. And he says, yeah, but his stock's in the toilet. <laughs> It's gone up 8,000% since, and I bought none of it. I oh, bet the no. CFO bought a ton of it instead <laughs> because he's much smarter than I am. I do find him very inspirational because of his capacity to to see stuff, to commit. But he committed 30% of revenue to R&D to yeah. go after AI, deep computing, yeah. uh, autonomous driving. He, he really committed, and he committed so long ago that you can't claim that it was luck. Yeah, he had some lucky turns on the way, but I, I think it's very, very inspiring.
1: Very cool. All right. Andy Benz, director and co founder of Change Logic LLC, and also the author of Corporate Explorer How Corporations Beat Startups at the Innovation Game. Thanks so much for coming on and Be Customer Led. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Delighted, Bill. Thank you very
1: much. All right, everybody. Another great episode. We're out.
0: Talk to you soon, everyone. Thanks for listening to Be Customer Led with Bill Stakos. We are grateful to our audience for the gift of their time. Be sure to visit us at BeCustomerLed.com for more episodes. Leave us feedback on how we're doing or tell us what you want to hear more about. Until next time, we're out.